Life is a canvas. Listen as Dr. Allison R. Tendler and her guests paint the stories of entrepreneurs, executives, and business leaders on her podcast, The Art of Seeing Clearly. Through insightful questions and thought-provoking conversation, Allison and her guests explore the essence of what it means to truly experience life, business, entrepreneurship, love, success, and even failure through a clearer lens. I'm your host, Dr. Allison R. Tendler, board-certified ophthalmologist, surgeon, owner, and CEO of Art Vision and Artisan Skin and Laser Center. I literally get to work every day to help people see better on the 2020 eye chart. But true clarity in life and in business often requires a slightly different kind of vision. I happen to have a passion for learning how other entrepreneurs and leaders find their clarity, and I want to share with you some of their secrets to success. Colleen Liebsch is a remarkable speaker, author, and successful entrepreneur. She's the driving force behind TriTech Marketing of Wyoming, Premier Marketing of Washington, and Performance Strategies of South Dakota, which later expanded to include PS Publishing and the nonprofit Books for Kids program. This nonprofit's mission is clear, building children's character through books. As an author, Colleen's stories, whether for children or delving into the horror genre, guide readers on introspective journeys. Her infectious energy and enthusiasm shine on global stages, where she distills her leadership, entrepreneurial, sales, and marketing expertise into actionable strategies for improving leadership, business skills, and team success. Colleen also shares her personal journey of overcoming adversity and abuse emphasizing the transformative power of making essential choices and practicing introspection, healing, and self-care. With a background in sociology and psychology from South Dakota State University, she was nominated for Outstanding Businesswoman of the Year in 1990. In 1997, Colleen's company, Premier Marketing, founded with just $1,000, earned the prestigious Agora Award for Small Business Excellence and Entrepreneurialism. The company thrived, boasting a remarkable 7% turnover rate and a waiting list of applicants, all without advertising for employment. Colleen, welcome to the art of seeing clearly. So this is awesome, Colleen. I'm so excited to have you in today for our podcast and really to learn about, as I was saying earlier when we were visiting, not necessarily what you do, but the whole story behind the why of who Colleen is (laughs) and I mean, some amazing things that you're doing in your life. I mean, you've had some business, what do I say, successes. You've had some book successes. And I'm just excited to hear about how did that work and who are you and versus necessarily what do you do? So let's get to it. I love to ask guests, tell me about where you grew up and your upbringing, because I feel like that always is an important facet of makes, you know, your your, your decisions and what you've done. Yes. You know, and there's the age old question, nature versus nurture. (laughs) I don't know that I have any answers for that, but first I have to say thank you so much for having me today. I'm so excited. It is. It's just a pleasure to visit with you. So my childhood was fascinating. That's a good word. Most people don't (laughs) say fascinating, but keep going. It was a wonderful study in human nature. My father... Was was, this a study in human nature versus nurture? (laughs) Very much so, yes. And, you know, kind of wondering, where is that line? Because if it's nature, I'm in trouble. 
if it's nurture, I can overcome my childhood. Yeah. And so it was really something I fought against my whole life in in trying to say, no, 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 it's not nature. It's nurture. It's okay. We can overcome this. Because that was one of the things I was most afraid of growing up Why? was being like my father. Okay. He was an abusive alcoholic. Okay. And he just... He summed it up perfectly when he left and my mother asked him, you know, I just have to know why. And he said, I guess I just wanted someone to hurt as much as I did. And I thought I could go down the channel, but I don't want that path. I don't want to be that person who puts that look on someone's face. How old were you when you recognized this and started having thoughts that were like, this does not have to be my life? You know, where it really was a slap in the face was my sophomore year in high school. I was in sociology class and the instructor talked about how uh, domestic violence. I had never heard the term before. I thought it was just a my house issue. I had no idea it was a bigger issue in the world. And uh, he not only talked about domestic violence, but he said, if you grow up in that situation, you'll grow up to abuse your own children. And I didn't hear a might. I didn't hear a could. It was a death sentence that I would grow up to be abusive. And being a stubborn Norwegian, I said, oh, no, no, there is absolutely no way I'm going to do that. And I wish I could say I'd kept that promise because I have abused people. I have said things to people that are rude. I've said things that to people that are unkind. My ex-husband comes to mind. <laughs> that's Don't you think that it's different than being a, a, abusive? Or do you kind of connotate them, it doesn't matter? Abuse is abuse. You know, I in my world now, it doesn't matter mm -hmm. because the line is too gray. Mm -hmm. And so it's either a stop or a start in my world. Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm not sure if I mentioned this, but I'm uh, working on a, a series of two books now called Thank You for Abusing. Me. And it's a look at domestic violence from the view of the kid hiding behind the couch. Mm -hmm. And I, I am truly, truly grateful for the negative things of my childhood because they taught me what it felt like to be hurt. And they also taught me what not to do. Yes. So when my son was born, I could make a promise to myself to say, I will never hurt him. Mm -hmm. He's 20 and a half. And I can say I've never called him a name that was anything but affection. I've never done anything but encourage him. Yes. He graduated valedictorian. And he is just... You, as you grew up. So you grew up in this environment and... How did you, you know, once you heard that as a sophomore, how did that alter your thinking on where you were going to take the trajectory of your life? Yes, you're not going to let that be you, but there's nature, there's nurture, nurture, there's grit, and not every personality could do what you did to make that transition in that positive versus negative journey. You know, I, I wish I could say that the revelation stuck with me when I was a sophomore. Okay. It hurt my feelings. It made me feel like I was going to be a bad person. But it you didn't have this awakening I at didn't that moment. The awakening at that moment. No. And mm -hmm. I it was later on when I realized I'm messing up my own life. I'm the one making these choices. No one is forcing oh. me into this relationship. How did you find that? How did you come to that self-awareness? Because self-awareness for, I don't care if you're a business owner, you're a you know a sophomore in college, high school. Self-awareness is huge. Yes. So when did that self-awareness happen for you? You know, I it's ingrained in me. And it's, it, it's ingrained in me because I always had a fear of not fitting in. 
which I, I learned much, much later in life, in my late 40s, it was because my father didn't believe I was his. Not because of anything against my mother, but I was born with red hair and he had black hair. He didn't think that could work. And so all of my life, I was treated as, a, as an outcast, as if I didn't fit into our family. But I didn't know why until my late 40s. And so it, the way that it affected me in the beginning was I wanted to stand out. And I wanted to be noticed. And I was not noticed for anything good. That's what so, I was going to say. So what did you do to be noticed? Oh, I drank. <laughs> Even as a young? Yes, as a matter of fact. And as a youngster in small town. Thing. So yes, you yes. small town, South Dakota. Yes. And it was because my grandmother, my father's mom, when my parents got a divorce, my grandmother was, she was an evil woman. And she made up all of these stories about how my father couldn't handle my drinking problem. And it was just too difficult for him to be able to live with me with with all of the problems. And I was an athlete. I was I was involved in every club in school. And so I just kind of thought, you know what, if everyone Did you thinks have a that, drinking problem in high school from that moment on? Yes, because it was what I was supposed to be. It was who I was supposed it to allowed be. you to stand out. Yes. Yeah. What did it and I wanted so much for somebody to just notice whether it was good or whether it was bad. Were you using it to be noticed or were you using it to self medicate? I mean, truly in a to different way, self medicate. To be noticed. Truly to be noticed. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so difficult. You know, in hindsight, I was so immature and irresponsible. Uh-huh. Uh, I couldn't recognize. Do you ever like this normally, like, hey, I'm this straight A student who's persevering, persevering, persevering? You're like, I am this student who's kind of mucking it up and maybe using all these other things, but this is why I'm doing that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it took me years to figure that out. Mm-hmm. And I was a straight C student through most of school, <laughs> mediocre athlete. Mm-hmm. I was average at everything because I never tried. Yeah. If I didn't try, I couldn't really fail. And so it was an out. I didn't have to give my best. And that mm-hmm. way I always had this excuse. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until college, actually until my my I went to work in telemarketing, that that changed. And it was because it was all numbers based and numbers never lie. Mm-hmm. And that was where I started. There's always an it. answer to the puzzle with a number. Exactly. Yes. And and I can argue with the numbers all I want to, but fact is a fact. And I'm going to have to face whether I'm succeeding or whether I'm failing. Hmm. What do you think one of the most important lessons is that you learned from your childhood experience, which I, again, don't wish on anybody, but yes, challenges do teach us a lot if we can persevere. What do you think one of those lessons would be? The biggest thing is how not to hurt people. That Uh, doesn't mean I haven't. I have, and I, you know, I regret any time I ever have, but it did teach me what it feels like to be hurt and to realize I don't want to be responsible for that. You know, it's one thing to have someone hurt you it's another to be responsible for someone else's pain. And I mm-hmm. I don't want that. Mm-hmm. I don't ever want that. That's interesting because yet through your younger years, you were hurting yourself. You are responsible for hurting yourself. Oh, yes. What do you think about that now? As that far is. as like, okay, I could have like, am I hurting myself? There's something about heart hurting others we don't want to do, but yes. yet that doesn't mean we're not hurting ourselves. That's still a journey I'm on. Yeah. It is still uh, it's still difficult not to say, OK, I'll be in last place. I'll pull up the rear. And in, in most situations, I'm very outgoing. But at the same time, it's 
Yeah, it's it's very confidence is a difficult thing. And I don't know that I could say I ever really learned confidence or gained confidence, but I learned what confident people look like. And mm-hmm. I could look like that. So I could walk the way they walked. I could smile the way they smiled. I could make eye contact. It didn't mean I had to feel any way. And I just baked it for decades. Don't you think, though, that a lot of us have that? Oh, yes. As far as leaders, business owners in the community, it's like, they, I mean, the adage of fake it till you make it, but there is something to it. It's like, if I'm having a bad day, I want to dress so that I feel more confident. Yes. I want to, at least that has, because you do feel different when you're in certain situations. You associate with different people that you want to yes. emulate to help try to bring, because they per- they seem to be confident. Yes. Um, how do I gain that? But they might be thinking that same thing, like, oh my gosh, I'm so not confident today. I can't believe I'm meeting with an amazing Colleen who's done all these great things. Wow, I want to be like her. Yes, and I I think everyone does have that feeling. I I learned that lesson when I was in business. I had started a company in Spokane, Washington, and it was doing very well. So I'd been invited to a lot of business opportunities throughout the community. One of the things was Ambassador Andrew Young was going to be speaking, right-hand of Martin Luther King. I was just enthralled with the idea. I mean, I I was so honored to even be asked to be in the same room as this gentleman. And I get to this banquet and it's filled with billionaires and the business owners from Spokane and all of these people I dreamt of being someday or even just knowing someday. And we all sit down to eat and they brought the salads out as he begins to speak. And I know from being at other banquets, they're going to take my salad if I don't eat it by the time the main course is ready. So I'm going to have to eat. But they didn't make any announcements. They didn't say, go ahead and eat. And this gentleman has already started speaking. So I thought, well, I'll just copy. That's all I have to do. And I look up and every person in the room is looking around, wondering what they're supposed to do. So I picked up my fork and started eating. And so did the rest of the room. And that was when I realized none of us know what we're doing. We're all just trying to do our best and to not offend people. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we don't mean to. But for the most part, most of us are not trying to intentionally hurt others. And the ones that are don't feel bad about it. Because they don't have the self-awareness that they're even causing that pain. Yes, they believe it's their pain. And that it's okay to treat, speak, be that way with somebody else to make them feel Yes. And we, we, I, you know, I can't say I haven't used that mm. before to say someone was mean to me, yeah. so I'm entitled to be mean to them. But what a circle that makes. Mm-hmm. It's just negativity that never ends. So what would you tell your five-year-old self? What would you say to that little girl? Hang in there. It's going to be okay. Who was your support during that time? Who kind of kept you maybe, we talked about nature versus nurture. So there was the nature Did you have a nurturer? You know, regardless of what she went through, mom was always the nurturer. She, there were many times where she had multiple jobs. I I hear people say, you know, why would a woman stay in an abusive relationship? And a lot of times people think it's financial. My mother was the one who made the money. She was the one who paid the bills, but it was, she loved him. And so while she was suffering, she never, ever, allowed us to go without. If I was sick, she was the one with the washcloth on my forehead. She was the one up in the middle of the night. And 
even though we had babysitters and we had, you know, lots of time by ourselves, Mm -hmm. I never felt like she wasn't there for us. Even when she had three jobs and Did you and went to correspondence school. Yes, I have an older sister and a younger I, brother. And they actually, they got me through so many different times. It, and I hope we got each other through. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things that really terrifies me about trends today, because it's now looked at as negligent for a woman to be in an abusive relationship with her children. And I've heard too many stories where CPS is coming in and they're taking the children to foster homes and they're splitting them up. That would have been the sure way to make my sister, who has been in the same job for 30 years, has excelled and just done incredible things. My brother owns his own business. None of us would be where we are today. And I hate to even think where we would be without each other. I don't know where I'd be without them. So it's a good thing in that stakes. A lot of us don't have a lot of siblings anymore that you had those siblings, but you were all strong. Yeah. So that's a that's a blessing. Yes. That you're all able to be strong. Now you've had several nicknames during your life as well. Tell me about your nickname of the boob. <laughs> you know, G O O B. That comes up in a lot of your books as well. It is. It's so, so, so tell me about that. What's with this name? You know, it's very funny because it doesn't seem like a very appropriate name for it's a woman. It's a very different <laughs> name. I'm gonna I'm gonna agree with you on that. So when I was born, um, apparently when they brought me home from the hospital, they put me in my crib and I just scooted back and forth all day. And so they called me Scooter. And when I started school, I had no idea Scooter wasn't my name. That was the name I learned to spell. That was I had never heard any other name. And on the first day of kindergarten, the teacher came up and said, you're Colleen, right? And I said, no, I'm Scooter. And she said, no, you're not. You're Colleen. And then she wrote the name on a piece of paper and taped it to my desk. But she spelled it wrong. And I didn't find that out till I was in fourth grade. Oh, but in between, when my brother was born, you know, it was as he grew, he just was my favorite hobby. I loved everything about him. He was someone I could protect, someone I could look out for. And as he started to grow and he wanted my attention, he called me Gooey because he couldn't say Scooter. And Gooey turned to Goob and it has stuck. (laughs) And so now you continue to use that as a pen name. I do. And it's my husband and I were in a store the other day and uh, he was trying to get my attention from across the aisle. And so he hollered out Goober and I was so angry. It took me about 15 minutes to talk to him again because Goober is my full name. That Er is my last name because as an author, you have to have both. So to say both means that I'm in trouble and it (laughs) makes my heart. Just just start racing. Like, oh, no, what did I do? Because that's what mom called me when I was in trouble. So who still calls you that? Goo? Oh, my yeah, whole family. Your whole family. Yep. Except for my mother's side, who all still call me Scooter. Huh. Colleen is a, a very formal name for me to go by. Yeah. Very much business work. Yeah. Anybody family or people that I've known for, you know, decades. It's always just Goo. That transitions us into talking a little bit about business. <laughs> and uh, you've had a very successful career in marketing, advertising, starting and running several telemarketing firms. How did you gravitate towards that? You know, it was like everything I've ever done, completely accidental. <laughs> I needed a part-time job in college and the hours worked out great. It was something, though, that became so natural for me because it was numbers-based. And you knew when you were good at it, you knew when you were bad at it. And it was very easy for me to be able to manage those things and see, okay, what are people who are good at it doing? What are people who are bad at it doing? And within three months, I was promoted. And from that point on, for the next 
25 years, I was promoted an average of four times a year. Didn't mean I got raises with the promotions, but I always got the promotions and more responsibilities, but I loved it. I loved the industry. And when I started my own company, it, you know, it's something that people think of with so much hatred because it's so negative. But the thing we celebrated most was when people would say, I'm so glad you called. I thought it was one of those damn telemarketers. If you, if it's done well, they don't should really know that you're, they don't really know that you're a telemarketer. Exactly. They shouldn't. Tell me about the company that you started. You know, I started it actually because I was fed up with the company that I worked for. Okay. The same I, one for 25 years. No, 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 no. no. My career was 25 okay. years. That was across all of gotcha. the companies. I was yep. like, wow. <laughs> no, no. It was, I had worked for them for about a year and a half. Okay. And as the company grew, when I started, they had 30 employees. And at the time I left, they had over 700. And it grew very quickly. But the generosity of the owners all of a sudden became something very different. It became greed. And the final decision for me was the company offered an incentive program to employees and backed out of it. And there were people that were owed thousands and thousands of dollars. And I thought, I, I just can't, I can't represent a company like that mm -hmm. to its employees. And as a manager, I feel like that's what I have to do. So I, I quit <laughs> with nothing lined up whatsoever. And on my last day, a friend told me about a company in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, that needed some help setting up their marketing department. So I spent about three months with them. Then I was hired to go to Great Bend, Kansas to set up a call center for the city down there and then moved to Spokane. And with the money that I had made from the other two projects, started Premier Marketing. Mm. And within two years, it was at 90 employees. And the thing I think I was most proud of, telemarketing oh, has ridiculous turnover. Two years, you had 90 employees. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Yes. Was it like mind bending to think that that's what happened? You know, no, because we never, it, you know, we had a, a salary to start off with that we could afford to pay ourselves and we never gave ourselves raises. And so the way I could tell the success was that people who told me that it was a stupid idea to start my own company, all of a sudden were trying to take credit for the things I'd accomplished. And, and a lot of people came to me for loans thinking that I must have money. <laughs> See, you act the part and then people think whatever they're going to think. Exactly. What were the keys to your success, do you think? Oh, golly. You know, I think I think it started with the realization that I had, as, as crazy as this sounds, about exit interviews. Exit interviews, have you ever done them? Occasionally. Yeah. Yes. Exit interviews are something that lots of people preach in business. And I did tons of them. And the answers are always the same. They found a better job. They don't get along with their supervisor or they need to make more money or better hours. It, it's usually within those four things. But then I started to realize I don't care why the people quit. I care who stayed. Why the so I started doing retention interviews. Like stay interviews. Yes. If you've been here for 30 days, why? If you've been here for six months, why? 90 days. And the thing that I found was that people want recognition. They just want to be told hello by name when they come in the door in the morning. And they want to know that the people who are making decisions for them, that the owners of the company, the managers of the company know who they are because they know they're making the money for the company. And if they're just left to kind of fend for themselves and be off on their own and the bigwigs get to go to meetings and get to do all of these important things, in my opinion, the company's forgetting what's important. In my company, managers were required to get employees coffee if they needed some. 
because managers are not revenue makers. The people who were on the phones were. So mm-hmm. anybody who wasn't on the phones, it, if you need something, that's who you ask. <laughs> and I think that value, making people feel like they mattered and also being very selective in who we hired. We used to have this joke about the mirror test. If you can fog up a mirror, you're hired. And a lot of companies use that because some will stay, some won't. It's just hopefully you'll get a whole bunch of bodies and then some will stay. And yeah, but the good one in training who's sitting next to the one that they know just left another job that they didn't do well at. Now, they may not stay because they're looking at it going, anyone can get this job. It's not valuable. So we started making it much more difficult to get the job. They had to go through quite a few steps. There were several processes. What was Um, the process? Tell me about that. They had to go through, of course, the the written application, which one of the things that I used with that besides the personal interview was what I call the receptionist test. And I noticed this one day completely by accident. My secretary had not gone to lunch and the the human resource manager had an interview. So I said, well, I'll copy the test for you. Don't worry about it. So she went to lunch. The applicant came in and couldn't have been more rude to me because they didn't think I mattered. And I thought, First of all, she matters. You know, she's an employee of the company. She's a and gatekeeper. she probably gets kind of a say in whether you're going to come here or not. She absolutely did from that day on. There was a separate page that was filled out by the receptionist on the applicant. How are they when nobody's looking? When they don't know it matters, well, how are they acting? And if they're different, I don't even want to interview them. It doesn't make any difference. Time's up. We get that in a slightly different sense, working with, of course, clients, customers, patients, how they'll be different with one personnel versus if I come into the room, it's very different. And so we recognize those things and that doesn't sit well with us. Yeah. You know, and it's in my career, I have plunged more toilets as the owner of the business than I ever did as an employee. So, you know, cozying up to us is not really the great move. One of the biggest challenges you can think of having faced having your own company that you overcame. The big challenge was managing growth because... Same location, staying in the same location. Yes. Yep. The as as the company grows, payroll goes out every two weeks. Clients, you hope pay in thirty days. Most pay in ninety days. So now you've got three months of paychecks every two weeks before you actually see any revenue. So I always had a rule: I must have three months worth of revenue in three months worth of bills in the bank at all times. If I don't, I'm short. I'm not going to come up. I'm not going to make payroll. What are my expenses for the next three months? I need to make sure I mandate that I keep that in the bank. Yep. I absolutely must have that or I've got to figure out how to get it. Because if a company can't support three months worth of payroll, you can't support your next client. You don't you can't afford to bring them on, which is sad. But so how did you I mean, we're talking about managing growth and that's one of your biggest tips of kind of keeping three months worth. But still, all the personnel, all the interviews, all the this, in such a short time. Yes. What were some of your secrets to try to help manage that? You clearly can't do it all on your own. Oh, my goodness. There was a gentleman who absolutely saved my life one day. The Service Corps of Retired Executives, SCORE, which is a little bit like SBA, but 
they're retired executives and they've been there. They know what's mm-hmm. going on and they, they're a mentor. business coach. Yes, so much so. And my business partner did not like the idea of increasing the line of credit before it was needed. Banks won't give you a line of credit increase when it, it's needed. They will only give it to you when you don't need it. So you've got to be able to plan those things ahead. Well, I, we disagreed on that. I, I learned that too. I'm like, well, that makes no sense. So when I need it, so I just need to keep it because if I say I don't need it anymore, then when I actually need it, I won't have that. That's exactly right. And that's why I love a line of credit because I don't have to have a loan unless I absolutely need it. And we had the biggest client we had ever had and they owed us $30,000 and we had $14,000 in payroll due that day and we didn't have it. And the check was overdue, but that doesn't make any difference. The, the, the bank isn't going to do anything. So we called the bank because we were at the line of credit. Nope, of course not, because you got to have it today. There's no way they're going to do that. So I called my score representative and I just said, I don't know what to do. I'm stuck. And he, bless his heart, he called the bank, which is where he banked as well. And he said, this company has outgrown your bank. You need to assign a different account representative. And if they ever fall short like this again, take it out of my account and increase their line of credit today. Fortunately, the check came in and we didn't have to do that. But his advocacy for us absolutely saved us. If nothing else, of just the terror of waiting until the mail came in that day. Because $14,000 is not a small check to write for payroll. No, no. Those are real stressors. Mm-hmm. For small businesses specifically, those are realistic and real stressors. How long were you in business before you felt like, okay, we're stable? Like, I feel like we're running this at a good pace. I've got three months in the bank. We're never. You're, you're laughing. Never. She's, she's, she's laughing over <laughs> here on the other side. She smiled and gave me this look. Never. There's never a time because one of the rules I always followed is no client can ever be more than 20% of your business because if, if they lose a client, it's a problem. But what if all of them leave? You know, the, all of those things were, they magnified as the company grew because now I was responsible for 90 people's livelihood, whether they had food on the table depended on the decisions that I made. And so it, it always felt fragile. I never, as an employee, ever felt the company I worked for was fragile, but they all are. Yes. As an owner, you just see it firsthand. It's very different lens that you're looking at it from an owner's standpoint. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody who wants to start their own business? My best advice, work in the industry. Do not start a business in something that you love without working in that field. I know a lot of people who would love to start a restaurant because they love to cook. And work in a restaurant. They see this kind of the glory aspect. Exactly. Of the chef coming out to the table and introductions and all those. And that might be 10 years down the line. Initially, it's scraping the grease off your face when you get home because your, your cook didn't show up and you spent the night in the kitchen. And if you don't love what you do, don't start a company doing it. It would. And plus, the other thing that's a little bit of a secret is then they pay for your mistakes. There are definitely mistakes that I made early in my management career that I don't think I could have afforded if it would have been on my own dime in my own companies. So saying that, how do you translate that to your own employees who it's like, oh my God, you made this mistake and this cost this company a fair amount of money, whether it's in a client or something didn't get processed and didn't get done correctly, or that now cost us double when it only needed to cost us this. 
Yes. What, what does that make you see? You know, it's like dealing with a toddler that just is not listening to anything that you're saying because you have to cover that frustration. It's not really their fault. I probably didn't explain it well enough or I didn't mention that part of it. I failed them in some way by not giving them enough information to be able to have that ownership. One of the things that I did in training, which I think people kind of hate it, every new employee had a hollowed out egg and they had to be responsible for it for the entire week of training. And inevitably, somebody's egg cracked. And the lesson of it is you can glue it, you can put tape on it, you can do all kinds of things to hold it together, but it will never again be whole. And that's a customer relationship. Once it's been damaged, it will never again be undamaged. It might be repaired, but it still has that healed crack. My mouth is open because that's such a beautiful analogy on uh, the importance of customer experience customer relationships. And yes, you might be able to get somebody back, but your relationship's never quite the same. No, there's always that lack of trust. And and I have back in the days when I was doing business consulting, the thing that I saw everywhere I went, every company has a mission statement. Every founder sat down and thought, what do I want this to be? What's my dream for this in the future? And they put those words together for that one sentence very carefully. If you ask employees, I have never found one who knew the company's mission statement. And I have done consulting in businesses where it's on the wall. (laughs) But if they're not told in training, that's what that sentence is. That's what that means. And that's why that founder did this. It's just words. It doesn't mean anything. So that information is, is crucial to share. How did you learn this stuff? Like, was it just... Did you have a mentor who helped you through this? Was it just school of hard knocks? Because we learn a lot as business owners as as we go through business and because we make a lot of mistakes. Oh, yeah. And things don't don't go how we wanted them to. Our processes aren't right. How did you learn to do it wrong? (laughs) Absolutely doing it wrong. How did you learn to do it right? Oh, man. It was through trial and error and a lot of mistakes. I remember an employee that I had to let go for for basically speaking inappropriately to somebody. He was rude. And and when I when I was sitting in there to let him go, I was still a relatively new manager and he just looked like he couldn't care less. And so I said, "Are you as apathetic as you appear?" And he burst out crying. He was beating himself up and that's not how I read his face at all and I just and I thought, "Okay, I got to open up my mind to learning from people because what I think and what I would do as a reaction isn't what they would do. And I got to give people a little bit more time to understand what their reaction is rather than jumping the gun and, and assuming that I know. I think that's just wise for every situation. We misread things. We've got our own lens. We're looking through our own past experience of how we would respond or we would react. And that doesn't, we might not see the proper cues or we might get a miscue oh, on sure. to how for in my world how a patient is feeling thinking and i pride myself on really sensing something's off yeah yet i might get a very different notion like oh they're they're not they're unhappy they're not kind or something sure like that sure. just to and it, and it changes could be that they just had the worst thing happen yes. in their whole life yes yeah, that's I, a wonderful reminder. I have had so many different, so many different lessons like that. One of them, 
Oh, it was, it's so embarrassing. So I was in a store and it was wintertime and I had a heavy coat on. I had my purse. I didn't get a cart because I'm not, not going to get very many things. So of course, sure, my you're not just full, you know, and overflowing everywhere. Perfect. I get everything on there. And then there's like this three inch place for me to write my check, try and balance my purse. And I get my checkbook out and a nickel dropped on the floor. And there was this woman behind me and we both are looking at the nickel and she's 85 if she's a day. And I'm thinking, okay, it's a nickel. I it, This isn't even worth the struggle of bending over to pick it up. I'm just going to leave it. But then she started to go to pick it up. And I thought, I cannot be so lazy that I'm going to let an 85-year-old woman pick up a nickel for me. That is just, that would be the worst person in the world. So I literally race her to the nickel. And as I'm picking it up, standing up, we made eye contact. And I realized what it must have looked like from her standpoint. She thought she was going to steal it or Exactly. Exactly. And I was trying to be kind. I wasn't kind at all. But it, it was such a misunderstanding and such a misinterpretation. But we usually don't ask because we assume the other person looked mad so they don't like me or they sounded like they were happy so they do like me. Let me take that and ask you that in a context of leader, owner to employees. And I think that goes both ways. We might not read their cues correctly. And I feel a lot of times they're not at all reading my cues correctly on what I'm really thinking or feeling too. So there's a lot of miscommunication with potential uncertainties and anxieties that maybe didn't need to happen. 100%, 100%. How do you try to manage that? I learned that lesson very early on as well. So I'm a big Mountain Dew drinker. Yes, I see that. You've got one right here, right now. And I said I was going to kill you. Sorry for Mountain Dew people. And I've been drinking Mountain Dew forever. But when I was managing a facility, I would have to go over here, then I'd have to go over here. So I was constantly losing my can of pop. And I I was walking around one day with a frown on my face because I could not for the life of me remember where I put my pop. And I looked up and everyone in the facility was looking at me very worried. And I realized what I looked like to them. They didn't know I was looking for my can of pop. They thought something was seriously wrong. And from that moment on, I realized if you're standing up or if you're an owner or if you're somebody who's known in the company, you have to be smiling every time someone sees you because someone is always seeing you and they're going to read into what that is. And they're going to think, oh, oh, the business is unstable. She was unhappy today. We're not making it. And if or they might think, oh, I'm going to be fired. She doesn't like me. She's mad at me. But they'll come to their own conclusions. I'm going to ask the question related to that because it makes me think of how lonely it can be. Oh, yes. At the top. At the top. When every little thing you do gets analyzed and who do you have to really open up to and just get to be you and just word vomit. That is so hard. Yes. You know, I found that to be a big challenge, too. I was invited to join every executive group that existed, every women's group that existed. And what I found was that it was not a place where I could say, I'm struggling. I don't know what I'm doing here. I have I'm messing it up. I've tried this, this and this. None of those things are working. Does anybody have an idea for me? I wanted a place where I could show my faults and get help and show like I don't have it all together. I'm struggling. Yes only other business owners. And there really should be more organizations of business owners, even just social, to be able to say, I've got this employee who's doing this and I don't know what to do. Have you ever come across that? 
or I need to reward an employee and I don't have it in the budget. What can I do? What's something that helps to make somebody feel important? I'll sign up for that. Things. Exactly. I would too. I'll sign up for that. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> oh my goodness. My goodness. This is, we could sit and talk about this for so much longer, but I also want to get into a little bit about you as an author. Yes. You're a speaker, you're an author, you've been an entrepreneur. And so let's dive into a little bit about your books. I mean, very unique books. When did you start deciding that Colleen, aka Goob, is an author? You know, it. I, st- I loved writing as a kid. And I wrote quite a bit because I loved my English teacher. But Thank uh, you, teachers. Yes, exactly. Yes. It wasn't until I reconnected with my middle school teacher, my middle school English teacher, who changed my life. She was the person who who made me go a different direction. She was the first person to ever tell me she was proud of me. The first person to say, I think you could be something. And oh. I wanted to oh, impress her. Teachers. Yes. These are those adults in kids' lives where you, she may have known what was going on. Did you she? know, she didn't. But I think she had a feeling. Yeah. And we reconnected again, probably, oh golly, it's probably been 16 years ago now on Facebook. Today, she's my editor. She's the one who said, did you ever do anything with writing? And I said, no, but you know, I've thought about it because I, I, my son was getting older, didn't really, you know, need my help as much. And, and she's, I think the only person who in the world who can understand my rough drafts, (laughs) but she's amazing. And she, she, she understood what it was like to be a kid going through phases of, I hate this person. I love this person. You know, my heart is broken. My heart is soaring. And my six-year-old does judge. that from five minutes, you know, each five minutes oh, yeah. differently. But. Exactly, exactly. And it's to you, you know, it's only a moment and it's going to pass. But to them in that moment, it is the end of the world. Yeah. And she understood that. She acknowledged that my end of the world was only mine and it was only for that moment. But she never said, it's only for that moment. Yeah. She just let me tell the stories. And in some cases, I wrote a lot of horror stories. I and in some cases very graphic horror stories. I'd probably have to be reported if I was a kid today. So, yes. Yeah, so here you are from going from like horror stories in in the adult world to to children's literature, yeah. and I can't wait to see the differences between those two. But at, are any of your original stories? Did you take anything from those in your current books? Not yet, okay. but I am looking to do that. Actually, mm-hmm. there's a couple of them that I've been thinking about reworking. I have all of them. I have all of the notebooks from when I was in school and all of the original writings for it. So someday I might do that. But I have got so many stacks of things that I need to get completed that, yeah, I need to dedicate more time to writing. How much time do you dedicate to writing? Not enough. Oh, my goodness. Just a lot of writers are like very like, hey, I'm going to write for two hours every day. I need to do four hours every day. (laughs) But right now I, I... I'm probably lucky if I do an hour a day on average, mm-hmm. which is not good because the books are in the final stages. And that is the hardest time for me. Writing the books is fun, but the rewriting, not so much. Rewriting. And now you have an editor. So does she say you need to rewrite this, but doesn't rewrite it for you? Isn't that what an editor is supposed to do? Rewrite yes. it for me. And she is so fantastic <laughs> about it. She's you know, I it's so funny. She sent me the manuscript back recently for the first book in the series, and I immediately opened it, 
read her comments on the first page, flipped it over, read the comments on the back page. And then I told her, you know, I'm getting started at it right now. And she said, I imagine you going to the first page of comments. And I said, that's exactly what I did. It's just like the te- getting a paper back from the teacher. And I am, I think, really odd in that I love critiques. Not, you know, I don't like it if it's negative where it's this is stupid or but that kind of thing. to try to help everything love be it. better. I absolutely love it. Or if somebody says, have you thought about taking this here? Or what do you mean here? Or when somebody has read a final story and they think it's something completely different than what I intended it to be. I love when that happens because I think that shows I'm just a deliverer of the message. The story was supposed to be out there and they were supposed to take it the way they were supposed to take it because we all kind of input ourselves into the stories that we're reading. What was the impetus for your first story? Oh, I'll say what the ones that have been published. What was the factor that drew you to that story? How did that happen? The first book that I ever wrote was Choices, Arrival of the Fourth Generation. And it started out as an 83-page novel. And I thought, Did you already really 83 concise. before you even got there? Like, no, it's just that's how long it took. It started, it was going to be an 83-page novel. I just thought, I'm very concise. 83 sounds good. <laughs> but then at the end of it, I realized why it was 83 pages. Most of it was still in my head. So it wasn't until I had beta readers saying, what are you talking about here? Where did this happen? And then I started going back through it, realizing how important because it was. Because now it's 300 like, pages. Yeah. So it needed to be more than 83. It, was, it did. And the story's completely different than the first draft. Interesting. <laughs> yes, my editor is an absolute angel. Deb Merkwan is her name. And she is an angel for even putting up with my rough draft. I, I love the, uh, the cover on this first book called Choices because it has an eyeball and it has some really pretty red stuff coming from it. <laughs> but that's for your horror portion. It Working is. on eyeballs all day long. I'm like, oh, this looks fairly... I recognize this. I can so tell I, you what's I, wrong with that I eyeball. I can't <laughs> wait for your next book so I can maybe, maybe we have some more eyeballs. I'm not sure, but I'm like, oh, I like that cover. You know, and I've always had such a fascination with eyes. I think eyes are just, I mean, not from a, a touching or, or doctoring standpoint, don't worry. <laughs> what but about eyes? It's just, I think that that's where people's souls, and that's where they shine through. And there are people that Like we were talking about earlier, where sometimes you look in their eyes and you just think, I just don't feel a kindness. I don't feel a radiance coming from here. And but more often than not, I do. And I love that. I love being able to see people's eyes and see their life inside their eyes. Which is why you wanted to come do this interview in person. Yes, yes, very much. Versus over the Internet. There's a little difference. Plus I wanted to meet you. Oh, you are so amazing. I just absolutely love what you do. Well, I don't know about that, but thank you. You non- are. Thank you nonetheless. What overall inspires your stories? You've got different genres, again, adults to children. I presume your children books aren't horror stories. And but <laughs> but what what inspires you? Change. I want to inspire change. And the only change that I really want to inspire with the books that's a common denominator through them all is accountability. With the the books for the students, anti-bullying, for example, they don't talk about who the bullies are in their class because it doesn't make any difference. They can't do anything about them. What we talk about is they're the bully and they have to fix themselves and they have to fix themselves right then. Because if we can all look at it and say, okay, I'm the one who needs to change. 
even if we're in a bad relationship, maybe what we need to change is our location, our geography. But if we make the changes, we can make our lives better. Mm -hmm. And with the book Choices, the novel, what I wanted to show there is you don't have to make the choices, but they will be made. So if you opt out of it, somebody's going to make it for Somebody's going to make that choice. And it's not fate. And it might not be the one you want. It's rarely the one you want. <laughs> so go after. Might as well make your own decision and make it be the one you want, right or wrong. Absolutely. But then it was yours. Absolutely. To own. Yes. Yes. And worse. if it doesn't work, then try something else. Yeah. Edison said when somebody said, you know, how do you feel about failing to create the light bulb 600 times? And he said, I didn't. I found the 601st step to making a light bulb. And that's true with everything in life. We never are going to succeed at first, but we're going to try something different, try something a little different, try something a little different, and eventually we'll figure it out. And each of those experiences only helps you build upon to get the experience or the way that you were supposed to go on your path. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And every job I've Mm -hmm. ever had in my life, including working for the Mink Ranch outside of Arlington, every job, I learned something that I carry with me today. Mm -hmm. I try to encourage high schoolers, college students in that same pathway, because they seem so anxious over where am I heading? Where, what am I going to do for the rest of my life? I'm like, just go get a job yep. and use that experience. You don't know who you're going to meet, who you're going to run to, what you're going to like, what you're not going to like, that's going to help guide you and make decisions for the next step. Exactly. And yeah. every job has facets. So you might not like this part. You might love this part. But you didn't know. Exactly. Until you did you not got, know it existed. You didn't know you were going to create a company for a call center, telemarketing. You never. You had no clue. But you got into an industry just by starting. Yeah, exactly. Just by starting. Tell us about books for kids. You've written some children's stories. So what's your hope for that program in the future? And where do you want that to go? That was also an accidental <laughs> death. Life full of fun things. Absolutely is. Amazing accidents. Yes. I was helping my son's school with the job shadowing program and I had a meeting. And so I walked into the school and he was sitting on the floor with a bunch of other kids. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, there's a book fair and they don't want us to get in the way of the kids who have money. And I was livid. I thought, okay, first of all, I'm working for you. You you couldn't call and tell me my son didn't have money. My office is 50 feet from the school. Nobody could maybe send out a little notice that, hey, there's a book fair today. But on my second thought, I realized he's not one of the kids who was left out. It was a rare occasion for him, but he wasn't sitting alone. He was sitting with five or six other kids in that hallway who weren't even allowed to save face by browsing at the shelves of a book fair. <laughs> That breaks my heart. Me too. Because I was one of the kids who could at least stand at the shelves and save face. And, you know, my mom would scrape together a dollar for me to be able to get a book, which was a lot. That was a sacrifice. But my friends would be walking out with, you know, 10 books. And it's the first time in school where we bring something in and say, now you're a have and you're a have not in preschool. Mm -hmm. And they don't need to know that. Quite honestly, they're all have nots. We don't allow kids below middle school to work. They're too young to have jobs. They're all equally poor. And we need to understand that if something's coming into the school where they're required to be, it should either be free or they shouldn't be allowed to come in. And the second thing that happened that that spurred me to start the program, one of the things I should say, not the second, but I got a call from the school because my son was in trouble. He was at a book fair and tried to buy a book for a friend. 
And I thought they were looking out for us financially. So I said, you know, that's fine. He can, he, it's his money. He can buy a book for a friend. And they said, not unless he buys, brings books for everybody. So I said, then we'll bring books for everybody. And I started the Books for Kids program. And it was the story, the first story was one that my niece asked me to write with her about empathy toward animals. And it had such an impact on the kids. It, in 20 minutes of a reading, they went from sticking their tongues out at us, being just kind of little creeps, to laughing with each other, sharing the book. And it was because they were all included in an event exactly equally. Everybody received a copy of the book for free. Everybody got to meet the author. Everybody had the same event. And now they've got this common denominator. They have this event that they can talk about. And one of the things that's a struggle when we tell kids, you know, stop bullying each other, get to be friends with each other. Over what? You know, what are you giving them to be a catalyst to become friends? Because they don't have things in common. Otherwise, they would be friends. We're giving them that thing in common. So whether they love the book or hate the book, and fortunately, there are very few who ever hate the book, but it still gives them that conversation starter. Yes. It gives them something to discuss and become friends. Oh, with. That is beautiful. It is true. We don't tend to befriend people who have something that's not in common with us. And that's right. like truly curious. But I think that happens more as we get older. We exactly. get curious about things we don't have in common so we can learn. But kids don't know that. They want to be the same. Yeah. Exactly. They want to be equal. They yep. they really cherish those and gravitate towards those who are similar. And they want to know they fit in. They yes. want to know they have a they place. They want to fit world. in, don't they? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Because we all kind of want to fit in. Yes. Our, we never lose that. We never lose that. The, the new book that I have coming out, which will be out by the first of the year, is called Why Don't I Fit In? And it's a children's book. And there's a reason why we don't fit in. Because there are no other people like us. Yeah, we are We're so unique and special. Exactly. There is no yeah. place other than where we And you don't want other people to be like you. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Or you wouldn't be you. Yes. And oh. there are, when I see kids, I mean, I see so many kids in the year and it just gives me hope because they are wonderful people. They have so much compassion. They have so much energy and they're ready to take over the world. We just have to stop training the kindness out of them. Oh, wow. We have to stop taking the kindness out of them. Oh, my goodness. It's one of my favorite statements that you said. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Truly, we do. We take the fun away. We take some of that. Yeah. Mm. And I wow. I have gotten, I have been rewarded so immensely with the program. Mm -hmm. I've never made a nickel. I've been the executive director and the CEO for nine years, never made a nickel. And it is the most rewarding thing I've ever done. The hugs that I've gotten and the stories that kids have told me. I ran into a little girl in Walmart that was just staring at me. And her mom came up and she asked if I was an author. And I said, yeah. And she said, I think you visited my daughter's school. And she brings her book with her everywhere. The little girl opened up her coat and it was my book. And, and I thought, you know, there's no pay that could ever reward me to that extent. You can't buy something like that. And mm -hmm. if I can change one child's life the way Deb Herrick, Merck One now, changed my life, then I've paid that back mm -hmm. because I owe that. Mm -hmm. She changed my life. And I, I only hope that someday somebody will say I changed theirs. I'm not sure I should ask any more questions. <laughs> this has been um, just just an amazing experience and time with you uh, on multiple facets. One way I would like to leave 
our listeners. And my very last question, though, is all of these things of what you do are made up of who you are. How do you maintain the balance of who Colleen is? What do you do for you to help keep saying, like, I am good, I am worthy, I am... It is a constant struggle. But the thing I had to tell myself was, I may never feel worthy. I may never feel like I deserve protection or security, but my son's mother does. My son deserves to have a mother who's safe, a mother who's healthy, and a mother who's happy. And for that, I will do anything. So that's the only way that I could achieve that balance. Was so what do you do to achieve that? You know, spend you- time with loved ones. To be able and spending time with children, it is is so refreshing to to be around people who are happy in everything they're doing because it's contagious and that rejuvenates me. Um, and I live on a lake that rejuvenates me every day. <laughs> there is something about a lake. I say looking at water is kind of like looking at a fire. Yes, there's just something mesmerizing exactly about it, and yes. there's a calming piece and just allows your mind to. I don't know. When you get to the lake, it is. It's real. Yes. And you get to live there. Yes. And, you know, I think it. If for me, it's the compartments of my brain. I have a very compartmentalized brain. And so there's a conversation going on in every slice of my brain. But a fire, I'm studying to see the pattern. And because there is no pattern, I can study it forever without those other thoughts interfering. The same thing with the LED lighting and things like that. But it takes needing to decipher that pattern that doesn't exist, needing to find the answers. And that, I think, is the purpose that I've had since the very beginning. I've just always asked the question, why? Why does that happen? Why is that going on? And I'll never stop asking, and I'll never know the answers for everything. Curiosity helps us grow. Curiosity helps us be better. And the more curious are, yes, the more we learn. But at the same time, as they all say, the more you realize you don't know anything. Oh, so, for sure. The older I get, the older I get, the more I realize how little I know. And I do too. I I am not, I've never been a fan of book learning. You know, I mean, I, for a writer, that's a little bad to say, but I love to see things, experience them firsthand, to touch them, to smell them, to see them, to feel them, and then be able to share that with the world and say, this is what you can have if you dream big. Mm. Well, for everybody, we're all thanking you for your time. Thank and you. I think we've gotten a lot out of our probably about an hour that we've been talking. And honestly, Colleen, I don't know that I can call you Goop, but <laughs> sorry. That's okay. <laughs> so I'm going to be very professional and call you Colleen. But thank you so much for sharing you with us. And it there's so many pearls that we've picked up today and helping us through your life, see our own worlds more clearly through the art of how you've done that for yourself. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me and so nice to meet you. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.